0: Once again, we're going to hear a story, a short story, in response to the question of the day, or the week, which is in the green box in your bulletin. The question is, where do you see God at work in the world where you live? Where do you see seeds of the gospel? The intention of these stories, as I've said earlier, is uh, not to stand alone and sufficient, but it's to spark more stories. So as you think about that question and you hear Laura share her story, uh, be thinking about uh, how you would answer that question and talk with others about it in your small group, Sunday school class, family dinner table, um, or share it with all of us by going to the web link that's in that green box and you can write a short answer to that question and we can all benefit from your stories as well. But Laura, what do you have to share with us?
1: My story comes from recently living in Guatemala. Eighteen of us packed up into two microvans and headed north into the mountains of the San Marcos Department in western Guatemala. This time of year, there's not a lot of rain, and as we drove higher, the terrain was mostly brown, very dry. The trees were scrubby, and even the pine trees looked dingy. As we pulled into a narrow lane off to the side, we had to stop— and get out to walk to our next destination. No car or van could get there. A few minutes later, we were at a little farm, looking out across a steep, deep valley. Marcial, the farmer, led us into his tiered agroparcel plot. So imagine these flat tiers about five feet wide. He had rows of carrots, radishes, broccoli, onions, garlic, chamomile, cilantro, tobacco, and other herbs and natural pesticides growing intermixed. We had to be very careful where we stepped because every plant had a purpose. Then we explored his 10 by 10 greenhouse where he had plant seedlings growing and tomatoes, three types of peppers, and at least eight other vegetables, of which I can't remember their names. He explained how he not only uses the vegetables to feed his family, but also sells them for income, and he is the main supplier of seedlings and seeds for his neighbors and community. He has gotten out of the trap of monocrop cultivation, and you could see the results. A pig and a cow in the small barn in the center provided manure for fertilization, and a gray water trough dug into a tier near the top of the plot helped to use every drop of water to keep things growing. There was green everywhere. After our tour, I heard Martial call his three young boys, probably all under the age of six, to come help him. They giggled and then outright laughed with delight as they pulled up carrots and ran to give one to each EMU student. We were overwhelmed by their generosity. It seems like such a simple thing, cultivating land for food and growth, but these days it's not simple at all. It requires intentionality, consistent care, and hope. I see God at work in the world through farmers like Marcial in Guatemala, and others in and around Harrisonburg who provide food for our community through healthy land stewardship, literally growing seeds of the gospel. Their work is living out hope.
0: Thank you, Laura. In principle, I think we church people all agree that it's important for the church to give witness to the gospel to the world around us. Scripture tells us clearly and often that we are stewards of the gospel, or good news. Of course, it can be good news only if it's distributed, shared with others, not kept as an in-house secret. But... Church people do have vastly different ideas about what faithful witness looks like in the world and how we do it. I won't resolve those differences today, but I'll share a metaphor for us to think about which might help our witness be more authentic. The metaphor is poetry. I think our witness should be poetic in a manner of speaking. Let's first look at the story from Acts 17. Paul is in the intellectual center of the Greek world, Athens, named after Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war. Paul was in Athens because he basically got dropped off there by other church people concerned for his safety. After he and Silas got into lots of trouble in the synagogues in Macedonia trouble for reasons that i've talked about in recent weeks see jews had to do this delicate dance with the roman empire to maintain the peace the people of the way paul in particular disturbed the peace preaching about lord jesus who did not have to answer to lord caesar and they disturbed jewish law Lacks on required rituals, sharing meals with Gentiles and the like. Jewish leaders in Macedonia took their case to the Roman authorities. Their accusation, these people are turning the world upside down, which in many ways they were. In just a few days in Macedonia, Paul and others managed to get severely beaten, thrown into prison, attacked by a mob, And barely escaped under the cover of darkness. So now Paul is in Athens, one of the more tolerant cities of the empire, moving around the Agora, an open marketplace of ideas and of gods and of goods. Acts 17 says he was deeply troubled when he saw a city full of idols and various deities. So he opened up conversation about it in the local synagogue, both with the Jews and with the Gentiles who worshipped Yahweh in the synagogue. And he also opened up conversation in the Agora among local Athenians, enough that he was causing a stir. Again, but the authorities in Athens, being the tolerant city that it was, did not just throw him in prison and beat him. Instead, they physically took him to the Areopagus, a kind of court, and compelled him to give verbal witness for this foreign god, Jesus, that he kept talking about. So, was this a trial? Was it a guest lecture? Or was it something in between? It's hard to say, but whatever it was, This was Paul at his best. Paul could put up a good fight in just about any Jewish synagogue around the Mediterranean, among his own people. Brash, harsh, argumentative, accusatory. It's no big surprise the trouble he got into. But here in Athens, a thoroughly pagan city, standing in front of genuinely curious philosophers, Paul represented a marginal minority. So he needed a softer approach. And he delivered. He begins with a heartfelt compliment to the people and the city. I see how extremely religious you are in every way. He noticed their yearning for the divine, and he affirmed them in that. I went through the city and looked carefully at your objects of worship. He was there to understand them, not to attack them. He notes in particular their shrine to an unknown God. So he tells them gently, I can introduce you to this unknown God. Turns out, This God is a lot closer to you than you think. And then, most amazing of all, to introduce them to Jesus, he did not pull out his Torah or quote Hebrew scriptures or Hebrew prophets. He used the Athenians' own literature. This sermon in Acts 17 is full of images and metaphors and sayings that were familiar to his audience. He quoted their philosophers directly. In him we live and move and have our being. An apparent quote from Epimenides, a poet philosopher from Crete. For we too are his offspring. A quote from Aratus, a Greek poet. Paul knew and respected his audience. He engaged them where they were on their terms. And then with respect, he said, you know, there's something more. And then he proclaimed the good news embodied in the person of the risen Jesus. And to be sure, his message about resurrection got mixed reviews. Some laughed, some ridiculed, Some were curious and asked to hear more, and some became believers. I think this is timeless wisdom here on display by Paul. Before we start dispensing the gospel in any culture, do we know them well enough to quote their poets? In any given culture, ours or ancient Greece, the poets are those who give voice to people's deepest longings and visions and hopes and fears. They might be literal poems that can be read, pondered, and memorized, but not necessarily. I'm using poetry as a metaphor here. Poetry is whatever takes us out of purely headspace and helps us engage the whole person. Intellect, heart, body, emotions, relationships, motivations, perceptions. Until we know someone well enough to not just think with them, But to feel with them, until we hope and yearn with them, until we suffer and rejoice with them, we may not have much to offer them that's of lasting value. Unless we believe that God was already at work in them long before we got there, we have no right bring them the gospel. Poetic witness is embodied witness that involves the whole person. Poetic witness is shaped by community. It is forged in relationships. So as a church called to bear witness... How do we inhabit the world that's around us? And how do we bear witness to that world? Now there's a wide variety of practice among our diverse Mennonite family in this very community, from the old order Mennonites to this congregation. Some of our neighboring Mennonites believe in cultural separation and bear witness only through their life and practice, and never send out mission workers or practice evangelism. Others strongly emphasize verbal witness and use overt evangelistic strategies, like tent meetings and other strategies and the like. Others witness mostly through service and also and occasionally through word. Regardless what form it takes, whatever the means of our witness to the gospel of Jesus, I would ask, does it touch the whole person? Is it embodied? Is it forged in community? Does it address our deepest longings and hopes and dreams and fears? If so, then it is poetry. Poetic witness can't help but include word and deed and example. It can't help but be authentic and compelling, real people being real with other real people. With Jesus at the center, that is faithful witness. That is what Paul demonstrated in the marketplace of ideas in Athens. That is what we are called to embody. May it be so. Join me in the confession, will you? You'll find it in your order of worship. God, we confess that our expressions of the gospel often fall short of authentic, embodied, and joyful witness to your good news, we settle instead for either awkward silence or arrogant posturing. Forgive us, send us, empower us. God, who has already gone ahead of us into the world, give us the eyes to see the gospel seeds you have already sown the grace to embrace your goodness wherever it appears, and the wisdom to speak and live your truth and partner with you to bring these seeds to maturity and fruitfulness. Send us, empower us, transform us. God of all peoples and all creation, let us rest in your promise to make all things new and to be with us wherever we go. In you we live and move and have our being.